from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator, and in this episode I'll be speaking to my colleague Zach Myers, who's a senior research fellow and also a tech and competition policy whiz. Hey Zach, thanks for coming on this episode. Hi Rosie, good to be here. We're going to be speaking about the EU's moves to crack down on the market dominance of big tech companies and its bid to make digital platforms more transparent and accountable in policing harmful content that's online. Those are the main aims of two new big pieces of legislation, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which the European Parliament and Council agreed upon in late March this year. In our conversation, we'll sometimes refer to them as the DMA and the DSA. Now, there's a lot to unpack about both. So in this episode, we'll talk about how these instruments will actually work in practice, what the DSA would mean for Elon Musk's provisional Twitter plans, and what the UK is doing itself in terms of tech regulation. Let's start with the Digital Markets Act, which wants partly to promote competition and to level the playing field in tech so that consumers have more choice and smaller competitors to the Facebooks and the Apples of the world aren't doomed to fail at the outset. So this is about the so-called gatekeepers of industry or big players who have a market capitalization of over 75 billion euros or an annual turnover of 7.5 billion euros. And there's a minimum threshold of consumers and business users too. Failure to comply with the new EU rules could mean a hefty fine of up to 10% of global revenues, but we'll come on to the requirements later. Um, but first, Zach, let's start with the companies that will be affected by the DMA. So I've already mentioned two of them, but could you expand on that? Tell us more about who the gatekeepers of industry are and how we got where we are. Sure, Rosie. So this has actually been a big question throughout the process. So it's always been clear that a few of the biggest tech companies, uh, which are known as GAFM companies, or Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft, we've always known that they were going to be uh, regulated and you know, they'd, they'd probably be the main targets of the regulation. But there has been much more debate about which types of smaller companies might also be caught and why. And in particular, throughout much of the lawmaking process in Brussels, there were criticisms from America that the Digital Markets Act was anti-American um, because all or almost all of the, of the big companies that would be regulated looked like they would be US companies. And so there was a big debate as part of the process of finalizing this law about whether to set the threshold for regulation low enough that there would be some European companies that would be regulated too. Mm -hmm. uh, so Parliament wanted a narrower scope, so they were kind of happy to bring the fight to America um, and only focus on the very few biggest companies. And then the European Commission and the Council wanted it to be broader. And so where we've ended up is that it's still definitely going to be American companies that are uh, mostly regulated. And so 
you know, not just the top five, but also others like Oracle and Salesforce, and PayPal and Verizon. And then there will be a couple of European companies um, like the business to business um, uh, enterprise software company, SAP, and also booking.com, which, um, which is a travel, um, an online travel platform. They'll both be regulated too. So it's uh, definitely not just the few biggest tech companies. Okay, thank you. And so what will this law actually make those types of companies do? So the DMA has a number of different rules, and essentially these are derived from previous cases or from investigations that European competition authorities have had against the large tech firms. These are the kind of the, the big five I was talking about before. And so there is criticism about the DMA having rules that are organised in this way for two reasons. Um, the first is that these rules don't really have a kind of coherent kind of thematic structure behind them. Um, it's really just kind of a motley collection of problems that have been identified in the past. And so I think that definitely the DMA rules are not going to be comprehensive and there'll still be competition concerns um, uh, that will have to be dealt with through normal competition law in the future. And the, the second criticism is that these rules take a concern that's really about one tech company and then they apply it more broadly to all of these companies that are going to be regulated. And so there's quite a big risk that these rules are going to go further than they, than they need to. And also that they'll start impacting consumers and businesses in ways that weren't really expected and they don't carry competitive benefits with them. Um, and that's probably true, especially when you're regulating these smaller companies that are you know, only a fraction of the size of, of Google or Microsoft, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think where you end up is you have um, a DMA that will probably help competition in some areas, but also could create some problems in other areas too. But the EU's approach with all this has been to adopt this mantra that actually the tech companies always had, which was, you know, move fast and break things. So in other words, I don't think anyone would really say that the DMA is perfect, but uh, Europe's position has been better to move quickly and to get it kind of 80% right. So um, to finally answer your question, you know, what do these rules actually require companies to do? I think that the best way to understand them is to break them up into three different categories of rules. Okay, sure, go for it. So, so the first is kind of obvious, it's to reduce the market power of core platforms. And by core platforms, I mean like the bits of a tech company where they're the most entrenched. Things like Google's search products or Facebook's social media network. And there are two ways you can do this. Firstly, you make it easier for smaller companies to compete against the big ones by making it easier for consumers to switch providers um, and to take the data with them when they do that. So for instance, there's rules that say that if you have a big instant messaging service, then you have to make that interoperable with a smaller service like, uh, say, Signal. And so that way, people, if Signal wanted to take up this, um, this right, then users could use Signal to talk to people who are on WhatsApp. And you wouldn't need to convince all your friends to use Signal as well. Right. The, the second way you make uh, you reduce the market power of core platforms is you make it easier for users and businesses to connect to each other directly so they don't need to keep going through either that platform or any other platform. So, for example, you can allow users to download apps directly from the internet on their phone, whereas today you'd have to go through the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. The second category of rules are rules that create a level playing field within the ecosystem that a tech firm runs. And so that would, you know, you can think about the app stores that are run by Microsoft, Apple and Google, and you can think about Amazon's marketplace. And so the, the 
the worry that people have here is that you have a firm that controls that whole ecosystem and the marketplace, and then they're selling third-party developers or sellers products, but they also have their own products that they're trying to sell in the marketplace too. And so they can easily steer customers towards buying what the big tech firm is selling. And so there are rules that try to make sure that the way that these ecosystems operate has to be fair and non-discriminatory. Uh, I mean, another example of this is if you were using Google to search for news websites, Google couldn't artificially list Google News in the top kind of one or two entries and then deliberately push all of the other independent news sources further down the list, even when that's not justified. Uh, and thirdly, there's this concept of increasing competition for a platform's newer services. And this kind of goes back to the idea of a level playing field. So the idea is you shouldn't allow a really big firm that's dominant in one part of the market to leverage that, uh, that business so that they can then dominate the smaller and newer services and products that will be coming down the track in, in the coming years. With their general brand and market muscle. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, most tech firms aren't enjoying the quiet life that you saw monopolies do in the past of just running their existing core platforms and doing nothing else. You know, they're also trying to push users to adopt new products. And these are often kind of bundled together with the platform. And often you don't even really think too much about it because, you know, they're, they're so seamlessly integrated together. You can think about like um, web browser engines is one example. So if you're using an Apple iPhone today, you don't have to use Apple's Safari web browser. You could download and use an alternative. But Apple insists that all of those alternatives have to use the underlying code that is uh, adopted by Apple's own web browser. And mm -hmm. basically that means that these third-party web browsers are limited in their functionality. So you know, they might be able to do more if Apple didn't have these restrictions. Uh, another example is payment services. So you know, Apple and Google obviously want you to use Apple Pay and, and Google Pay um, when you buy apps on their app stores, for example. But if the market was more open, you could easily imagine that there could be third-party payment services that you might want to use instead. So the DMA is basically trying to stop big tech firms from forcing business users and consumers from having to offer or use these additional add-on services. And so that way they can be kind of third-party players who can come in and provide consumers with more choice. Mm -hmm. And then if we look at some of the companies or all of the companies targeted rather, will they have to adopt the legislation uniformly across their services or products, even if some of these services or products don't have market dominance, a bit like Microsoft's Windows, which does, versus its Bing search engine, which doesn't. Yeah, quite possibly. And this is because this concept of market dominance isn't actually a feature in the DMA at all. The DMA is really focused on, is your service big? And so um, you only have to comply for services that have a certain minimum number of business users and consumers. And that number is pretty big. So it's like 45 million monthly users and 10,000 yearly business users. But I guess the problem is that you can have situations where you have a lot of users, but there's still a high degree of competition and you definitely wouldn't have market dominance. So that could be the case where users can freely swap between competing services. So for example, like if you buy an Apple iPhone, you're basically stuck with using the Apple App Store. You can't suddenly use the Google App Store unless you want to buy a completely new phone. Uh, so in that case, you know, looking at the number of users probably does make sense. But if you're an online shopper, you could buy something from Amazon, something else from a merchant online directly on their website, and then you could use competing marketplaces like Wayfair. 
so if you merely look at the number of users, it doesn't give you a good sense of, you know, is this company actually, do they have a really large market share or, or not? And the second problem is that some of these rules, they go beyond regulating a firm's biggest services and they affect other services too. So for example, there's this rule about um, a regulated gatekeeper can't mix personal data from its big services with those of its small services. And that can make it harder for smaller services to grow, which uh, you can understand maybe that's a concern in some cases. If you're worried about a gatekeeper not dominating a market that could exist in the future, Bing is an excellent example here because actually, you know, Google's got a 90% plus market share in online search. And so if you want to improve competition in that market, it would clearly make sense to help Bing get a leg up so it can get more than, you know, just a tiny fraction of, of searches. And to do that, you know, it could easily make sense to Microsoft to be able to mix data with Bing uh, together with other information it's got on users so it can provide them with the best results. And so you have this case where the rules really go beyond dealing with market dominance and they could make it harder for competition to emerge rather than easier. Right, okay. And then, so when you mentioned about one of the aims being for consumers to be able to leave a platform or service more easily, that would naturally spur on companies to innovate and have something to offer with increased competition in the mix and I'm talking about the gatekeepers here having that Mm -hmm. motivation but surely there wouldn't be competitors emerging in the short or even potentially mid-term so this law can't be about promoting innovation within the big tech companies can it? Yeah so innovation in the big tech firms is interesting because we've seen in the last couple of years that you have these very large tech companies that have a huge amount of expertise. They have large amounts of data so they can see what users are interested in. And they spent a huge amount of money trying to build services that compete with what other big tech companies do. And in almost all cases, this hasn't gone particularly well for them in the last couple of years. You can vaguely remember probably that Google tried to get in on the social networking um, sphere with Google Plus. Mm-hmm. Amazon tried to build a phone and a, and a phone operating system and so forth. So there's a lot of cases where even the big tech firms don't seem to be able to innovate in ways that improve competition uh, in these kind of entrenched markets. And at the same time, there is a lot of innovation in these new and emerging markets, um, you know, the metaverse is a, is a term that's often thrown about, but that's clearly a case where all the, um, all the big tech firms are investing in augmented reality and virtual reality and trying to be the first ones to make that a, a success. So I would say in some areas, innovation in big tech firms today is thriving and in other cases, it's, um, it's probably not. So I think the domain will probably have some complex impacts on Uh, the way that innovation takes place. So I think uh, one reason we see innovation today is because some firms are strategically quite vulnerable. So Facebook is a good example, or Meta, rather, is a good example of this. So as a consumer, you can't just access Meta without going through other big tech services. If you want to use uh, Facebook on your phone, for example, you're going to be buying a device that could be made by Apple or Google Uh, You'll be going through an operating system, which is made by Microsoft, Apple, or Google. 
you'll then need to go through an app store or access it through a browser, which again will be made by um, another tech company other than Meta and Facebook. So this makes Facebook quite vulnerable to what these other companies are choosing to do. And we saw this recently when Apple um, made some changes to the way it, uh, its operating system worked so that uh, app developers like Facebook couldn't track users um, without the user giving express consent and, and many consumers didn't want to give that consent. So that meant that it suddenly overnight became really difficult for Facebook to track what users were doing and to track whether its advertising was effective. And that led to its advertising revenues plummeting and its share price followed shortly afterwards. So you can see that, you know, for Facebook, this is absolutely a, uh, like an existential crisis. And you can see that that is why uh, Facebook is really going all in now on investing in the metaverse, uh, which they think is going to be the next generation of the internet. Now, the DMA would make life easier for Facebook in some ways because uh, by forcing the companies like Apple and Google, which Facebook relies on, forcing those companies to be more transparent and reasonable, you kind of reduce some of this risk that there'll be some kind of catastrophic business impact on Facebook from what mm -hmm. the, the other big gatekeepers are doing. And so if you make life easier for Facebook in that way, then you can see that, well, maybe some of this incentive to spend a lot of money on finding the next big thing would go away too. So in that way, you can see that the DMA might actually reduce some incentives for innovation. Um, mm. But on the other hand, there are clearly lots of small firms that never get the chance to innovate because they are in danger as soon as they start to become threatening to the big firms. Um, and so then the existing big firms can acquire them or they can copy what they're doing or they can just make, the, make life impossible for these small firms. For example, like if you have a consumer service, you could uh, make it impossible to find on an app store or in search results. So in that way, I think that when you look at what small companies are doing, there's going to be quite positive impacts on innovation potentially. Okay, understood. Now let's go back to when you mentioned the metaverse and talking about AI, augmented reality. Is that kind of the gist of it? Could you, could you, I'm sure it's not an easy thing to sum up, but could you try? Sure. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows, probably not even Facebook what um, the metaverse is really going to look like in practice. Um, I guess at a high level, what most people are expecting is that there'll be kind of a greater level of personalized interaction in the metaverse. So you had the internet that started with kind of basic text when people's bandwidth wasn't very high. Then you had kind of images starting to be able to be shared and um, made as part of websites. And then in the current era, you know, video is, is the latest and greatest use of the internet um, as our connections and computing speeds have gotten better. And so the idea is that a much more immersive experience um, in some way, shape or form is going to be the next generation of the internet. And that could be anything from, um, uh, you know, these virtual worlds where you could have a business meeting or try on clothes that you're planning to buy from Amazon or from another kind of online fashion website, um, all the way through to surgeons using it to kind of remotely conduct surgery. So the, you know, the potential is kind of limitless, uh, but I think there's a real difficulty in understanding kind of how do we get there because it's quite a technological leap and also quite a psychological leap. So I think, you know, for most people, they associate 
online worlds with gaming, uh, which is you know, definitely attractive for a, a, a small number of people, but maybe quite a leap to think that businesses are suddenly going to run their meetings using avatars, for example. So yeah, there's a lot we don't know, but um, it's certainly going to be exciting to see what innovations develop from it. Definitely. Um, okay, thanks for that. And so if we go back to the consumers who mm-hmm. will ultimately have improved services, um, let's say not with not with Sandy, the complicated arguments about, mm-hmm. about innovation, but generally speaking, um, more choice and flexibility to switch providers, maybe in the future competitors slowly emerging perhaps but um in the short term what's that going to going to look like with the big companies sort of grappling with the new rules and what will it look like for consumers yeah i think there'll be a mix of impacts and there'll definitely be more choices for consumers uh, but at the same time it could make their life a little bit more challenging because they'll have to face decisions that they that they never had to have to face before because they were just made by um by some of the big tech companies so as an example when you buy a phone in the future you'll get a choice screen so that you won't necessarily have to start with the firm's own pre-installed software. You'll be able to make a choice from the very start as to which browser you want to use, um, for example. You'll also be able to, as I said, download apps from the internet or use different types of app stores, not just the one that the, um, the operating system provides. But at the same time, you're going to need to take responsibility to make sure that you're not downloading malware, mm-hmm. uh, for example. And as I also mentioned, eventually you'll be able to use one messaging app to chat with people or even call people who are using other apps. Uh, so you'll probably get users being you know, a lot more dispersed across different services. Um, I think you'll also see some clear improvements in some areas too. So for example, users can use a third-party app store or download apps directly from the internet. But Apple and Google definitely won't want you to be doing that. They'd much prefer that you use their own app store. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they lowered the commissions that they currently charge developers. Uh, and then if developers pass those savings on to consumers, then you can see that you could easily see that app prices could drop in the future, uh, which means that as a consumer, you'll get the safety of going through an existing app store and knowing that the apps have been vetted by Apple and Google to the standards they are today, but you'll also be paying a lower price for that. Okay, so lots to look out for them. Um... So if I can go back to your example where you spoke about interoperability and the notion of, um, say, Signal, a smaller messaging service, uh, cooperating with WhatsApp so that people can message, say, a friend on WhatsApp from Signal. Um, There have been some concerns about interoperability, intellectual property, data sharing. Um, How much of a risk actually actually would this pose, let's say, for the bigger companies? And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, there's actually been a few concerns raised about interoperability. Um, The first is whether it would reduce security. So, for example, would a company like WhatsApp have to share data and conversations with other apps that might steal your data or otherwise act in a way that's um, kind of disreputable? And I think that these concerns have been a bit overblown by firms who don't want these reforms to succeed. Um, So the DMA gives tech firms the ability to protect their users from cybersecurity threats um, in the first place. So, you know, that's always been made clear that it was a priority. And secondly, I think if you just 
step back from the detail. More competition and more open markets are generally better for security. And this is actually an argument that big tech firms have, uh, you know, been made in the past, um, you know, when they weren't quite the monoliths that they are today. And when consumers have more choices, uh, people can experiment and then they can gravitate towards providers who prove themselves to be the most trustworthy. And that's probably a lot better for consumers in the long run mm -hmm. than having to put all your trust in, in one company. We know that even the best of those companies, so you know, if you look at Apple, which has a great reputation for offering security and convenience for its users, even it's let um, problematic apps into the App Store in the past too. So, um, so I do think there's scope for competition to make things better, even on security. The other concern is that interoperability can stifle innovation because you usually need the whole market to follow a single set of standards so that um, everyone's talking the same language. And so this is a concern if you are trying to impose interoperability in a market which is not very mature, where everyone's still kind of um, experimenting and technology is moving really quickly. So interoperability generally works best when you've got a market that, uh, you know, where there isn't a lot of innovation and um, it's pretty clear that competition isn't going to emerge in the long run by itself. Uh, that said, I think the way it has been implemented in the Digital Markets Act is like a good compromise because it still gives the, the big tech firm who's running the biggest service the chance to set the standard for itself um, as long as it's consulting with um, smaller players when it's making any big changes. And in that way, you still have the ability to kind of move everyone onto a new standard if some new and exciting functionality comes along. But you're also kind of not just leaving the possibility of new competition emerging to kind of a hope and a prayer. Okay, thank you, Zach. That, that clears a lot up about the um, Digital Markets Act. And then what about the UK? So is there anything similar on the horizon there that they're planning? That's a great question. And there has been something similar on the horizon for a couple of years now. Uh, so um, for quite a while, experts have been telling the UK government to establish a new regime uh, that would improve tech competition. And the government has done quite a lot of thinking about what this regime should look like. And what they've come up with is a proposal which is quite a bit different to the EU's model. So it's a lot more flexible. It doesn't have like a single set of rules that are imposed on everyone from the start. Um, it's gonna be a lot more tailored and hopefully uh, remove some of the rougher edges that are in the DMA. The problem is that progress on this law has been really very slow. Um, there was a lot of speculation about whether the law would make it into the Queen's speech, which was two weeks ago. And that would mean that the government would commit that they would finally bring a bill to parliament in the next year. And unfortunately, this didn't happen, allegedly, because some parts of the government are worried. They think that the UK isn't going to get ahead by um, imposing more regulation and that they want to be focused on kind of a deregulatory agenda. Mm. So the government has said that it's still committed to the reforms, but we don't really know when um, they're ever going to be enacted. So the real question now is like, what does the UK do in the meantime? And the UK competition regulator has been doing a lot of really useful studies on what, you know, how these tech markets are operating um, and what the problems are within them. And 
they do have the power before, you know, even without any new laws to start to move away from just a study and then into a full investigation that would then give them the power to put in new rules like we've seen in the Digital Markets Act to change how those markets operate. And I, I really think that it would be a good idea for the um, UK Competition Authority to, to go down that route. Um, we don't know when there's going to be new powers that um, are specifically tailored for digital markets. But if uh, the authority uses the powers that they have now, then you could have new rules in place by the start of 2024, uh, which is exactly the same time in which markets are going to have to change in Europe because of the Digital Markets Act. So I, I think if, uh, if the authority acts quickly, then you'll have this period in the next kind of 18 months where both the, uh, the European Commission and the UK Competition Authority will be trying to work out how to design and implement um, their, own, um, their own rules for these markets and you could get some really sensible harmonisation. So moving from the Digital Markets Act and, and what the UK's got in store, let's turn to the Digital Services Act, which is set to be enforced by January 2024. And it's about improving content moderation on online platforms so it will regulate how online platforms tackle disinformation child sexual abuse images content relating to terrorism and also the sale of dangerous products so it will affect the likes of facebook twitter tiktok and amazon and platforms will have to be more transparent about how many people they employ to moderate content and in which languages and they'll have to give users a way to flag harmful content they won't be able to target children with ads and algorithms that they use won't be able to be based on gender, race or religion. Um, so, Zach, what are these platforms currently doing to regulate this type of content? At the moment, it's a bit of a free-for-all and each platform has its own content moderation rules and practices. And there have been quite a few concerns with this approach in the last few years. So first, as everyone knows, there's a sense that there just isn't enough content moderation and that it's not aggressive enough. And there's still a lot of awful content on social media, everything from violence to harassment. And some people allege that it's part of the business model of these platforms to promote some of the more uh, extreme and emotional material because that keeps users on the platform for longer. So there's this general sense about more needs to be done. Uh, secondly, during crises like dealing with COVID and the war in Ukraine, you saw platforms very quickly having to change and update their acceptable content rules uh, to adjust to um, the situation as it was emerging. And so there was a lot of criticism that the way that they were changing those rules seemed quite ad hoc and in some cases politicised and um, certainly not very transparent. Third, uh, this is kind of the opposite of the first concern. There's a lot of false positives. So uh, many people are complaining that legitimate material has been taken down by the platforms by mistake. And that includes, for example, um, uh, like material like satire or parody. Um, and so this is especially the case because when you're dealing with such a large amount of content, um, it's not really possible to rely entirely on human moderators to be able to look at all of it and assess whether or not it falls within the acceptable use policies of the platform or not. 
And so they rely a lot on machine learning, but that still has a long way to go. And finally, I touched on this already, that there hasn't been a lot of transparency in content moderation to date. So it's often very difficult or impossible to challenge a decision made by the platforms, which looks wrong. For example, if your content has been taken down or your account has been suspended. And um, there's also a transparency problem because it's been quite difficult for policymakers, for researchers and academics, and for the general public to understand what is it that these platforms are actually doing about content moderation and how effective is it at dealing with the problems that emerge or are exacerbated in the online world. Now, you've probably got the sense already that all of this is actually incredibly difficult. And um, particularly when it involves politicized decisions, like when many of the social media platforms banned Donald Trump. And so there's been lots of different strategies that the platforms are using to try to, uh, to cope with the complexity and with the, um, the worries that people have about politicization. And you know, one example has been Facebook trying to, well, setting up this independent body that, um, that is the ultimate decision maker about um, some of these really thorny and complex moderation decisions. If you can draw anything from all of the above, it's that the status quo doesn't leave anyone being particularly happy. So the DSA probably won't solve all of these problems. In fact, it definitely won't. But it is trying to improve things by making sure that platforms act transparently, that users have rights to appeal, that the public gets, and researchers and policymakers all get information about what steps are being taken and how effective they are. Uh, and also that on you know, the, the truly, uh, truly terrible illegal material that it is taken down promptly. Yeah, but, but as you said, what a um, murky area so of, of definition. So, so when you look at the content that will be encompassed by the, the Digital Services Act, how did the EU draw the line with, between the content it will ban and say free speech? How, how did it get there? Yeah, I and mean, this was a hugely thorny issue um, at the start, but there has been kind of a, a compromise that's that was reached. You can imagine kind of three positions on the spectrum, right? On the one end, you've got forcing platforms to cut down on legal but harmful content. So going, you know, well beyond what um, today's laws require about um, legality. And a lot of member states wanted to push for this option because, um, you know, they wanted to kind of legislate for platforms to be civil places where everyone feels safe. But you can't really do that without severely impacting freedom of speech. And then if you're forcing material to be taken down that's legal, you're really kind of blurring the line between what is legal and what is illegal. So a lot of people were very upset with the attempt to, to go down that path. You've then got the opposite extreme, which is that you force platforms to leave up everything unless it's illegal. And there were some EU member states, especially those who had more right-wing governments, who were quite keen on this approach. You know, they believed that content regulation tends to help the political left and it silences the political right. And in fact, there's uh, recently been a, a law passed in, um, in Texas that uh, follows this type of approach. Um, but I have to say, like, it's a pretty severe intrusion in the businesses and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me and probably not to a lot of people. 
for example, if you have a platform and you want it to be family friendly, surely you should be allowed to say that you're not allowed to post violence or nudity on, on the platform. And it, it seems bizarre to think that a law should prevent you from running a family friendly service if you want to do that, as long as other people are allowed to run platforms that take different approaches. Mm. So I, I think both of these first two approaches are, are quite extreme and, you know, they definitely didn't get a, um, an acceptance across the EU. The third approach, which is somewhere in the middle, is that you force platforms to remove illegal content and you let them decide for themselves how to deal with legal but harmful content. And this is essentially the middle ground that the DSA took. So um, there's no rule saying that you have to remove content which is harmful but legal. And instead, there's rules around saying that if that type of content creates risks for people who are using the platform, then you have to think about uh, what are those risks and you have to find ways to mitigate them. But you don't necessarily have to just take this blunt approach of, of taking down content. And um, the commission then with the DSA also put in a last minute request for greater powers to regulate disinformation in a crisis. And you did mention crises. Um, did that did that request make the cut? And what do you think about it? Yeah, so this is the idea that in a crisis and the Russian war on Ukraine was clearly the one that the commission had in mind, that the commission should be able to step in and tell platforms how do you moderate harmful content, even if it's legal. And this was really focused on the question of what are we doing about Russian disinformation? Because we all know like it's not a it's not illegal to post something online that is wrong. Um, even if, uh, if that's then taken up and believed by a lot of different people, because you know, freedom of speech means freedom of you know to be able to have an opinion that that may not be end up being right in the end. So this idea of having a crisis mechanism where the commission is able to step in and tell the platforms what they should do about content that the commission thinks is problematic that did make the cut, and I I, I really don't think that was a good idea so it came in at the very last minute during the trilogue negotiations and so this meant that there wasn't really any public scrutiny of what this mechanism would look like or the reasons why it was being um, proposed um, and what safeguards it would have a lot of it only came out because of leaks and um, and that clearly made a lot of civil society organizations justifiably upset so, you know, I, I think it's quite questionable whether enforcing censorship of legal material is really a good answer to the problem of disinformation. Uh, it seems to me far better to promote media literacy, you know, to help give users tools so that they can critically evaluate what they're reading. Um, often it's the case that bans just encourage people who already feel marginalised or are inclined towards believing conspiracy theories. Uh, to adopt even more extreme positions and to feel that the fact that information is being censored uh, kind of legitimates their, um, uh, their concern. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, we don't know what content moderation steps work best in combating um, extremism and disinformation. And platforms are still experimenting in that. And some of the steps that actually look the most promising and the most helpful to limit the way that disinformation is disseminated are quite subtle. Um, an example of that is the way that Twitter had this um, extra step that you had to 
click through if you wanted to share an article that you hadn't actually read. And that really did help to quite a large extent limit um, the spread of um, conspiracy theories on Twitter, even though it didn't actually look like it was a very uh, harsh or um, extreme step. And it, you know, it certainly wasn't uh, harmful to freedom of expression because people could still do what they wanted. They were just forced to think about it a little bit more. And so I think that there's a real risk that if the commission uses these crisis powers, that they end up imposing quite harsh and severe rules that end up backfiring and doing more harm than, than good. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. And um, so this isn't, so it would be an interesting time for Elon Musk to take over Twitter with all the conversations about whether the deal will go through or not for $44 billion. But and he said it won't if Twitter, unless Twitter can prove that no more than 5% of its accounts are bots, as Twitter claims. So, but for the sake, for, for the sake of this podcast, let's just say the deal does go through. Will the, will the DSA affect him much and his plans for a big pro-free speech Twitter? Um, well, the more I read his comments, the less I'm sure what his plans are and whether he's really thought through it at all. So when he initially announced the deal, he did say, as you said, that he was this absolute free speech advocate. And then uh, it was only illegal content that he would want banned from the platform. But it does seem to me the more he's thought through the complexities and the reality of running a network, the more he realises that you actually do need to curate users' experience um, or all of your, or, or at least a very large proportion of your users are going to leave you because it will just become a a very toxic place to be. Um, and then finally, we've, we've seen um, Musk record a somewhat awkward video with uh, Terry Breton um, in recent weeks, where he then said that he was fully on board with the Digital Services Act, fully understood what it meant, and uh, it was consistent with what he planned to do. I think uh, in the end, that, that third uh, position is probably the right one, um, so as I said, the DSA is actually pretty flexible when it goes beyond illegal content. You have to think about how your platform could contribute to particular types of harms and mitigate those harms. But there's many ways that you can do that that go beyond censorship. Uh, for example, uh, what's far more important than deciding what stays up and what goes down is about how are you designing your algorithms so that you are promoting content that keeps people engaged and interested and you demote other content. So the DSA also forces platforms to be transparent and accountable, like I've said, so that regulators and researchers and the public can look under the hood and uh, kind of work out what are these algorithms actually doing and um, uh, who are they benefiting? So I think there will be a lot of scrutiny about whether his uh, recommender algorithms end up favoring the political left or the political right example um and you know there's not a, a simple way in which you can when you're dealing with that type of complexity just decide oh i'm a free speech advocate and i'm politically neutral um you know he's going to be criticized one way or the other and under the dsa it will be quite hard to just um you know shut the curtains and say you, know, you can't see all of this material right got you so so while the law itself won't hold back his plans for loosening content moderation he won't like the other knock-on impacts it may have um 
and with both Tesla and Twitter's share prices dropping, he must be starting to feel like it's a poison chalice. Um, so let's have a quick word about the UK's plans. Um, it's gone even further than the DSA in terms of content moderation with its answer to it, the online safety bill, which actually will cover legal but harmful content. So do you think that this definition, which is already relatively, I suppose, broad, will just get expanded and expanded? So actually, I think that the opposite has happened. So the UK has really struggled with the online safety bill. Um, it's been around in various guises um, for quite a while now. And each time it's been very heavily criticised. Um, so there's been a number of iterations and I am maybe cautiously optimistic that the government is finally trying to understand some of the consequences of regulating legal but harmful content. And it really seems to have stepped back from some of the more extreme ways um, in which it was going to limit freedom of speech. So the latest version of, um, of the bill actually looks a lot more similar to the DSA on this issue of legal but harmful content um, than any of the previous drafts of the UK bill. And so again, it will not um, forcibly require platforms to take down content that could be harmful. Instead, it's about empowering users so that they have tools so that they can filter out some of this content themselves if they want. Um, there's still quite a few problems with the bill, I have to say. I think that it imposes a lot more regulation on smaller companies than the DSA does. So for really small businesses, there are many obligations in the DSA that just won't apply. And the idea is that you're not going to be at risk of causing a great, huge portion of social harm if you've got a small platform that only a small number of people are using. But as you get bigger, your obligations and your accountability get bigger. And so the online safety bill still imposes quite a lot of obligations on really large numbers of quite small UK tech companies. And so I, I still think that there is a, a need for it to think a bit more carefully about whether it's going to help um, grow the UK digital economy and also whether it's kind of a proportionate um, way of, of solving some of the problems that it's trying to address. So on this issue, again, just like with the DMA, the UK is kind of much further behind Europe. Um, but on this topic, I would say that uh, the legislation doesn't look like it's going to be quite as um, good or effective as, as the EU version. Okay. Well, th yeah, thank you for painting that um, pretty nuanced picture of where the UK is at. Um, and for coming on coming on this this episode in general, you've cleared many, many things up. And um, yeah, it's been wonderful. So this has been the CER podcast. We'll see you next time. Feel free to leave us a review or rating. And thank you, Zach, for joining me. Thanks so much, Rosie. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.